The Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec are now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at Prince Harry's crusade against the media, discussing the complicated history of the Benin bronzes and charting the rise of fake libraries. First up, this week... Prince Harry has taken the stand to give evidence in the Mirror Group phone hacking trial, which The Spectator's deputy editor, Freddie Gray, writes about in his cover piece. Freddie argues that Prince Harry's suicide mission against the press is ill-advised. He joins me now along with Patrick Jeffson, former private secretary to Princess Diana. Freddie, you say in your piece that Harry came across very ill-prepared, Could you take our listeners through some of the testimony that he has given this week that led you to that conclusion? Well, I think it was extremely odd, even for people that have been following this quite closely, because um, Harry submitted his witness statement, which we saw uh, yesterday, which is Monday, I should say. And it was an extraordinary sort of splurge of sentiment. And I thought reading it, I thought it read a bit like offcuts from Spare. (laughs) <laughs> bits that the ghost ghost writer had said we really can't put this in it was just a lot about his feelings and so on and as the cross-examination happened I mean we knew we knew that Harry was able to talk to journalists uh, like Anderson Cooper at CNN or Tom Bradby at ITV and talk about his experience and sound quite passionate and you know he has he has genuine grievances I don't think we should be cynical about that but what we didn't realise was, well, what we, what we all knew, in fact, but what we didn't quite appreciate was how bad it was going to be when uh, he was cross-examined by uh, a leading barrister, which he was yesterday. And it turned out that a lot of his complaints amounted to nothing more than sort of a fishing exercise, you know, just he, 50 stories against the Daily Mirror. Most of them are simply Harry's hunch that this could be phone hacking because he didn't like the story and it made him upset. And what was very obvious from his testimony was that he can't distinguish between what makes him upset and what could have been illegal phone hacking. Hmm. And he said before that he considers it his life's work uh, to try and change the landscape of media. And he's even said that he doesn't mind if it's seen as a suicide mission. This is what he wants to achieve. So... Did you see that coming out this week in terms of this attempt to change the media landscape, as he as he puts it? I'd say it was a bit of a suicide mission, although that's probably too grandiose. It was just a sort of humiliation for him. But in his mind, and I think there'll be enough people around him who will say to him that he's doing the right thing, so he'll keep thinking it, that um, he's doing something that is really virtuous and good, which is he's he's going to turn the way the press in the UK operates. I think... There is a lot of appetite to change the way the press in the UK operates. And so he may eventually be successful. But he can't just throw 
strange allegations out in court because what seemed to me that he he can't distinguish between being in court and a and a, and a media interview and that came very clear he wasn't very comfortable when he was asked to sort of detail what he meant in the allegations where he is comfortable is talking about his feelings and talking about how terrible the media is patrick what did you make of harry's court appearance this week do you think his attack on the tabloid media is ill-advised it almost always is i can remember litigating against, actually against the mirror, uh, with his mother 30 odd years ago. And it's one of these things you do in the heat of the moment and you think, yeah, let's get in and get these guys. And there's always a lawyer who's going to tell you, I know your views on on lawyers, Freddie, but there's always going to be a lawyer who, if you pay him enough, will say, absolutely right. You are, you are a hero. Mm. And um, it feels great for the first few days. But then as time wears on, and time's going to wear on a lot for Harry between now and, and when we get a decision on this, it becomes less and less exciting. Royal people generally, in my experience, uh, don't have long attention spans. And the the idea that uh, there's going to be instant gratification from this, uh, I think, has, has probably dissipated. It's one of those things that, that feels good while you're doing it. But the reality, the forensics, the detail, which, again, is not generally a royal strong point, is uh, is where I think he will come undone. And he he does seem to be I mean, martyring himself over this issue. Or oh, sorry, he sees himself as martyring himself over this issue. Do you think that he's drawing parallels with what happened to his mother and, and her experience with the media and trying to sort of um, find a sort of justice for that, as he would see it? I mean, do, do you think there's what's going on in his in his mind? I think it would be very, very helpful for Harry to study his mother's experience with the media, for all current members of the royal family to study that experience, because, of course, it is far more complex than he seems to imagine. It has to be seen. This case has to be seen in the context of royal media relations, really since, I suppose, about 1990, when uh, his father embarked on a strategy of borrowing political-style news management from uh, politics and applied it to royal news management, which is entirely misplaced. I was brought up to believe that you don't criticize the royal family because they can't answer back. Well, nobody's believed that for a very long time. They answer (laughs) back in spades now. And I think that a proper study of Princess Diana's experience with the media, good and bad, would have given Harry a little context, an opportunity to reflect on what he's really trying to achieve and where all the evils in his life come from. They don't all come from from the media. Uh, The media did not kill his mother. Uh, The media, I should know, was used by his mother, used by his father, used ruthlessly by his father as a a means to advance his own agenda, which was to to rehabilitate Camilla Parker Bowles, successfully accomplished. And Harry, I think, has found himself on the wrong end of that campaign, a lot of people have, and this is perhaps some sort of redress. Well, Freddie, so what what do you think is the real story behind this then? I mean, you highlight in your piece that the amount of money there is to be made by media lawyers over hacking claims. I mean, so do, you suggest in your piece that Harry's being taken for a royal ride. Uh, I wonder if you could explain that side of your, of your article to our listeners. Well, I think a lot of lawyers, media lawyers, have made a lot of money from hacking claims. And it's a perfect marriage, really, between celebrities, royals, famous people who feel aggrieved 
who don't like their privacy being invaded for obvious reasons, but the lawyers tend to convince them that they've got some higher noble calling, and I think they've done this with Harry very effectively, and that noble calling is to get rid of the the toxic culture. And it's a very popular idea, this. You know, if you watch a TV show like Succession, it's a very good show, but at its heart, it's about how media constructs toxic narrative feeds off the worst instincts of the public and so on and uses that to swing elections to destroy things there is some truth in that but not a lot I mean generally people don't believe a lot of what they read and I think Harry and you know this sort of almost complex of you know media lawyers combining with celebrities have just they've made a lot of money for the lawyers and they make a lot of headlines because the media likes talking about the media. People are very, very interested in whether they're being lied to and so on. But ultimately, it's a, it's a, bit, of a, it's a bit of hucksterism, really. Hmm. Patrick, do you think for a second that, that Harry recognises the irony, perhaps, of broadcasting so widely his apparent desire for privacy? <laughs> no, I think, but I think there is a sort of um, double think you know, in many royal minds about the media. It's well known they want the media there to see them doing their good works to support Invictus or service in Afghanistan or something. But um, he does not want the media uh, there for when he falls out of nightclubs or when he misremembers or perhaps uh, misjudges his own uh, his own future uh, royal career. So uh, there is a I think it's accepted in royal circles that the the media are the enemy. You look at the language they use to describe the media, and yet. Um, they're stuck with having to deal with the media. The media in recent years, I think, have come to their own accommodation with this, which is to be generally fairly complacent when it comes to, to their royal dealings. Very, the, the whip hand is very much now with the palace in a way that it wasn't in the period that Harry is describing in the early part of his testimony. It was the real Wild West then. And I say I feel rather nostalgic for it, given the, the way in which everything is homogenized and packaged up now. And to that extent, I, I do salute Harry. He is plowing his own furrow. Um, he may be mistaken, but in his own mind, and hopefully in his in his family's mind, he is out there fighting on their behalf. And um, uh, it is always easier to criticize people who, who take a stand, win or lose. I think there is something noble about it, even if it is also rather self-serving. Well, it may be somewhat noble, but Freddie, you suggest in your piece that there is also a sort of tragicomic element to this, you, you compare him a bit to Don Quixote in that the enemy that he's attacking to some extent no longer exists. I, w- I wonder if you could explain explain that for our listeners. Well, I think, again, he's he has this idea that the media is the UK tabloid press. And the tabloid press is still powerful in some ways, but it's not all powerful and never actually has been. And so he keeps tilting at the, at the tabloids much like Don Quixote tilted at windmills, thinking that he's on this great noble mission, but a lot of it is in his head. And to touch on what Patrick was saying, one of the one of the passages in Spare that I thought was particularly striking, again, accepting that it was ghost-written, but I think it's a fair reflection of what Harry thinks, was a bit where he's talking about a story coming up about in his childhood that he found humiliating and embarrassing, and he's sort of reflecting on it in the past tense. And he says... Once we were considered divine, royal men and women were considered divine. Uh, Now we were figures of fun. They pluck our wings. I think he's channeling King Lear there. 
But but what's interesting about that is obviously there's a little bit of resentment. And obviously, as Patrick suggests there, the royal family, members of a monarchy, don't like living in a democracy uh, because it means that they are figures of fun. And for them, the, the power balance has, has gone wrong because for them, they should be able to construct the narratives, to use a phrase that Harry likes using, that they want. And what they don't like is that other people are allowed to say things about them. But then isn't there an irony? Because in his witness statements uh, the last few days, Harry has said that the, he believes that the tabloid media undermine democracy. Yes. Well, that tells you a lot about how Harry thinks, <laughs> uh, that he thinks that he's saving democracy. And uh, as I say in the piece, I mean, a lot of people who are obsessed with fake news are often the biggest peddlers of fake news because they don't really want to save the truth. They just want to stop things that they don't like being said being said. I think just to follow that, if I may, I mean, Freddie, that, that, that is, a, that is a, a point widely applicable, I think, to royal media relations generally. The astonishing thing to me is the amount of anger that the royal family feel towards not the revealing of truth, but the fact that the truth has been revealed, that somebody has had the temerity to say this. It's, it's, it's the messenger, not the message, who catches it. Uh, and it seems to me that if you recast Harry's whole crusade from the perspective that actually what is being reported is broadly true, then you would might you might reach a far less damaging way of resolving what he sees as uh, a life and death struggle. Thank you, Freddie and Patrick. Next, in the magazine, the historian Professor Robert Toombs discusses the trouble with returning the Benin bronzes to Nigeria. He argues that their return is more complicated than some claim. He joins us now alongside Deirdre Farmer-Paleman, executive director of the Restitution Study Group, who have recently screened a short film in Cannes detailing why they think the bronzes should stay where they are. Robert, could you take us through your argument? Why is it that museums feel a moral obligation to send these artefacts back to Nigeria? I think it's quite difficult to explain why exactly they're doing it other than a kind of general international virtue signalling combined with, in some cases, diplomatic relations with Nigeria. But in general, it's let's say if we look at the intellectual side of it, I think it's part of an effort to create um, an entirely negative narrative around British history, and particularly the history of the empire, in order to say that nothing that it did could be justified or could have had any benefits. Everything it did was motivated by greed, violence, uh, the, the wish for loot and exploitation, and so on. And I think that this particular case brings out the difficulties in that kind of narrative, uh, in that um, this expedition, which we would arguably deplore um, today, nevertheless freed slaves, prevented human sacrifice of slaves. And therefore, I think when what we're talking about this issue brings forward the moral complexities, which some people are trying to simply efface and show it as simply a very simple moral choice, which, it, which it's not. And if, of course, we are going to dispose of some of these bronzes, or indeed all of them, um, it's not, it seems to me, simply for the trustees of these institutions and for the Nigerian government, and even less for the present Ober of Benin, to have control of the process. There are lots of other people who are involved. And above all, 
the the people who are descended from the the people whose lives were destroyed by their enslavement uh, and whose 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 bodies were the price of the brass that made these works of art Deirdre, one of the recent interjections in this debate is from your group, the Restitution Study Group. Can you tell listeners what your connection is to the bronzers and and also what you believe should happen to them? Right. Well, our organisation is concerned with reparatory justice. And so with respect to the bronzers, what we've learned is that the bronzers were made with manilas. This is a slave trade currency. The Kingdom of Benin required 50 for a male, I mean, 54 women, 57 for a male. And they melted these down and cast them into the bronzes. So as far as we're concerned, the bronzes are the embodiment of our enslaved ancestors. And they paid for these bronzes with their lives. We continue to pay for these bronzes with the sufferings that we go through today. And so we are asking that these bronzes be shared with us, particularly the 16th to 19th century relics that were made with these slave trade what we call blood metal. And would you like the bronzes to stay here or would you like them returned to Nigeria? Where would, where, what, what's your group arguing for? The 16th and 19th century relics, we actually want to stay exactly where they are because uh, the descendants of the people who paid for them with their lives are in the UK, in the United States, in the places where these relics are today. We need access to these relics for our children. The history of them is not told in the museums. And at this time, the Nigerian government and the Benin Kingdom have control over whether or not the narratives, the true narrative is told. We want the truth told and we want access. So, we, so yes, they have to stay where they are. The, Robert, so, so I suppose a question might be, why now? Why is there suddenly a lot of calls from Cambridge and other institutions to return the Benin bronzes. Why is this? Why is this happening particularly now? The the initiative seems to have come from a really quite small inner group. Deidre will know at least as much about this as I do, but it seems to have come from international associations of museums, museum curators, who themselves have decided, with very little public consultation and as far as I know, practically no discussion with interested parties, that they will decide what to do with these objects. And their decision is, there's been for some years a group called the Benin Dialogue Group, which as far as I can see is made up mainly of the personnel of various museums who've been pushing for this, but who have not discussed it much or at all publicly. And uh, and the initiative has come almost entirely from them, and the decision has been made largely privately or even secretly, and has um, has not been in any way scrutinised. Deirdre, is your group in communication with the people at Cambridge who are who are trying to get these bronzes sent back? What 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 are relations like on that front? We've been reaching out to all of the stakeholders of the bronzes, including the universities in the UK, the, um, the museums in the UK, uh, in the, actually the Benin Kingdom, and Germany, as well as the United States. So we've reached out to at least 107 parties, letting them know the history of the bronzes and making sure they understand that due diligence was required before these 
moral decisions were made. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there was not any consideration of the descendants of enslaved Africans who pay for these relics. And so at this point, the battle is making sure that we are we are at the table to discuss where these relics end up. And so far, we are having some success, um, getting some feedback, some positive feedback from some uh, institutions, but we have a long way to go. Robert, I wonder, is that something you worry about, a lack of sort of due diligence? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, I got the information because I put in a, a freedom of information request. In fact, I put in two or three before I was able to find out what documentation existed and before I was able to get copies of it. So these are generally, these are decisions made by, by small committees. I have no objection to, to small committees. That's how the university runs. But in this case, it was done in a very quiet manner. It did not, as far as I know, cause any discussion at all. And I think very few people were aware of it. I mean, the university could have done a whole lot of things. If it thinks it has too many bronzes, more bronzes than it needs for scholarly purposes, it could consider giving or indeed selling some of them to Nigeria. It, it could use the money to, um, to set up scholarships for African students. It could consider transferring them to other museums which don't have bronzes like this. For example, um, perhaps in, in the Caribbean, where, as Deidre was saying, there are many descendants of enslaved Nigerians or enslaved Benin, uh, victims of the Benin kingdom. But it didn't, it didn't consider doing any of these things. It simply decided it would and it must, it had a moral obligation, it thought, simply to give these things wholesale to the Nigerian government and to, and to allow these to, to be transferred, it seems, to the Oba, the descendants of the Obas of Benin, the present-day Oba of Benin, who is a honorific figure within the Nigerian uh, state. Now, this, I would have thought, again, Adidria will speak far more eloquently and with far more right to speak on this matter than I have, but it seems to me that this is the, this is the very opposite of a properly considered moral or ethical decision. Absolutely. I mean, it, what it does is it gives the Nigerians and the Benin Kingdom a second opportunity to profit from enslaving us. Uh, and this is the opposite of mor morality. This is, this is inhumanity. Thank you, Robert and Deirdre. And finally, journalist Emily Rhodes writes this week about the rise of fake libraries and the current trend for having phony books on bookshelves. Emily joins us now alongside The Spectator's literary editor, Sam Leith. Emily, can you tell us when you first spotted this trend? Yeah, thanks, Laura. I saw a piece by the New York Times, I think it was, reporting this rise in the trend for fake books. And um, when I read this piece, I was kind of completely appalled because there were all these interior designers and people on interviewed saying, well, isn't this just a great design solution? We don't need to bother with having the actual books on the shelves. We could just, um, you know, what, why would you put a real book on a hard-to-reach shelf when it would just gather dust, when you could just put fake books on? You know, why, why, why have a book by your guest's bed when you could put a sort of quirky storage box, pretending to be a book, but actually somewhere they could put their trinkets, which seems so utterly anathema to me. I sort of thought I'd look a little bit more carefully at what was going on. 
And how does it work? Do people tend to have a mixture of real books and fake books or is the trend to go for a bookshelf full of fake books? Yeah, I think um, perhaps more of a mixture. So um, again, these ideas of like the, the hard to reach shelves, why would you bother putting books there if you're never going to get them down? The sort of curiosity, the sort of the, the humour in a, in a pretend book, which is actually a box. And I think they've also been quite popular for Zoom backgrounds, you know, these kind of fabric coverings. Um, yeah, so everything behind me, you'll see, is completely fake. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to ask them. Um, but I think really it kind of reveals this other trend that we've stopped thinking about books quite so much in terms of what they contain, um, these kind of holders of information or sort of stores of stories and these things you want to pick up and open and being more just these like pretty objects or things that have a blue cover so would look next to look nice next to sort of other blue books on your shelf well sam as the spectator's literary editor i wonder, I wonder what you make of that has there always to some extent been a market for books as pretty objects or as um, status accessories, I suppose, rather than for what they contain? Well, I mean, I think books have always been decorative objects as well as if you have contents, containers for information and text. I mean, you know, obviously illuminated manuscripts, you know, right back at the beginning were visual objects before or as well as they were, you know, communicative texts. And, you know, when my dad was running a restaurant in the early 90s, you know, that you used to be able to buy, and I think you still can, books by the yard from secondhand bookshops that would, would kind of accumulate these old leather-bound books that nobody wanted anymore and sell them as restaurant decor. You know, if you wanted to have a shelf of books, they'd, they'd just get you, you know, we want this many brown ones and this many green ones and so on. So I think it's not a completely new phenomenon. And, you know, if you go into some London clubs, there are doors concealed behind sort of fake bookshelves. So I think the the two functions of the books are are kind of have jogged along alongside each other for a very long time. And of course, as Emily points out in her excellent piece, the survival of printed books in the digital age has in part been driven by the fact that people, you know, publishers have worked really hard to make them into attractive objects. So it's no great surprise, really, that people, you know, are sometimes foregrounding that function. <laughs> and so do you, have you uh, observed what uh, Emily writes about in her in her piece about how book covers have changed um, quite a bit since the arrival of ebooks and and I wondered what what your observations might be yeah I think you can see them you know particularly with hardbacks you know special editions attractive hardbacks of art books and you know they're, they're really they have worked very very hard to make them prettier I mean again actually it's sort of interior decor thing when I was a student you know we we would build up our copies of you know sort of penguin classics you know you'd, you'd want to have all the ones with the red stripes across the top <laughs> for english classics and the yellow stripes for european classics and the purple stripes for classics classics you know you put them all in a row or the white picadors from the early 90s when peter strauss was running the company there's very nice editions you'd want to put them together so there's there's always been that but the attractiveness of those uniform editions you know it was kind of on quite a basic level there's not quite as much attention then i think paid to cover design and embossing things and putting gold glittery things on popular fiction as there is now oh no I mean I, I completely agree Sam and um 
you know, there's something wonderful about going around someone's house and seeing all the green spines of their Virago classics. You sort of instantly know. Yes, you know, Viragos are another great. We're, we're going to get on well. But I suppose in the way you are talking about it and the way I think of it as well, the, we're thinking about the cover as somehow being um, kind of symbolic of the content. You know, I don't think anybody would just have a whole shelf of Virago classics and not have read them or you know they want to be thinking about what's inside them as well as how they look on the shelf whereas what I was perhaps gesturing a little bit more towards are things like these trends to arrange your bookshelves by color or um, only have books of a certain height well a very good point you make is about you know Instagram shelfies and about book talk and I mean that seems to me to be kind of a, a nugget of it is that because people who are successful on social media have to post God knows how many times a day or a week, posting books, which obviously require, even if you're you know, as quick a reader as my colleague Philip Hensher, you're not going to be able to post anything meaningful about the contents four times a day on four separate books because nobody reads that fast. So the, the, sort of, the way the algorithm's set up means that people who, who are doing books on social media are going to have to be doing you know, judging them by their cover, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, um, you know, in a way, social media is so amazing because it gives so many people a voice and people get really excited and there's this kind of playfulness about it and it's fun bringing different books together to sort of look nice. But I do think there's this, it's real style over substance, isn't it? You can't engage deeply in a 30-second video. Or, I mean, um, the last last time I saw a, a book that I'm very fond of, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, you know, really intensively discussed on social media was because somebody had put a thing saying that it, if somebody said they liked R- Infinite Jest on their dating profile, that was a red flag. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's the book as signifier rather than what the book's signifying itself, you know. Mm-hmm. Final question for both of you, starting with, with you, yeah. Emily, if, you, if, you, if, if I may. You mentioned in your piece that books, and we've mentioned on this podcast, that in many ways, in many ways, book covers have never been more beautiful. I wonder, almost irrespective of the contents within, do you have a favourite cover? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think I do, actually. It's um, paperback. Okay, I've got to try and get all the details right. It was of 1984 by Orwell, and um, it had been reissued as a Penguin in a sort of Penguin Classic edition with the in the classic orange, you know, those sort of old orange classics covers. And they just, um, he'd crossed out all the writing on it. Hmm. Yeah, it was really kind of iconic, really clever book cover. And how about you, Sam? Well, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I would say that I'm, I very much like the cover of my own book on rhetoric. It's available on all good bookshops. Shameless, Sam. Absolutely shameless. <laughs> well Sam and Everly thank you very much indeed for joining us thank you oh thanks for having us on and that's everything this week as ever if you've enjoyed the podcast please do pick up a copy of the magazine you can read everything that we've talked about I'm Lara Prendergast and I'm William Moore and we hope you'll join us again next week mm-hmm.